Now on Radio 4, time for another Fry's English Delight with Stephen Fry, a programme about the future of English, what it might look and sound like in, say, a hundred years' time. And this one is called Future Conditional. Yes, you heard that announcer correctly. We'll be coming to that in a minute. This programme is called The Future Conditional because in the absence of time travel we can only look at current conditions to forecast what will become of our beloved, and some say benighted, English. If our words were truly exports, then we would be by far the wealthiest nation on the planet and a good deal of the future of English is wrapped up in how our language continues to grow and change. Professor David Crystal is a linguist and broadcaster and an authority on the future of English. Professor Crystal, I rather naughtily suggested that our station announcer, our Radio 4 announcer, might uh, change THs to Zs because I know that that's one of the predictions you've made. Uh, Tongue-in-cheek or quite seriously do you think the th noise will go? Well, tongue between teeth you mean rather yes. than tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> um, well, it wouldn't be surprising if the TH eventually disappeared amongst... Uh, First of all, a lot of foreign learners who find it difficult to say, and eventually maybe amongst the majority of English speakers too. And the sounds that were around in Anglo-Saxon are no longer the sounds that are used today. Uh, words like uh, um, white, W-H-I-T-E, uh, which was huite, with a H at the beginning in Anglo-Saxon, a very powerful H. That got lost, of course, in the Middle Ages, so that most people today say white, not white. What it will go to is the question. It could go to a Z, like the Germans do, and they say, this is the interesting thing, and so on. But it could go to an F, you see, which is what the Cockneys have been doing for hundreds of years. I mean, there's no magic about the TH. It, it came along from Germanic, uh, and one group in England decided they liked it, so they stuck with it. But lots of regional accents, of course, haven't used it. Another set of questions is about technology. Will we ever achieve a language we can share with computers? Ron Kaplan, social psychologist and chief scientist at the PowerSet division of Microsoft Bing in San Francisco, a search engineer. Over time, technology will become competent in our natural languages and the languages that we speak every day. Professor David Crystal says that the migratory patterns of our language as it continues to move across the globe gives us a whole range of Englishes, and that process is becoming ever more intense. So just as once upon a time there was British English and American English, and then there came Australian English and South African English, and then Indian English, and then Caribbean English, now it's down to the level of Nigerian English, Ghanaian English, Singaporean English, and so on. And these are the new Englishes of the world. But what happens is this, that when a country adopts English as its language, it then immediately adapts it to suit its own circumstances. I mean, why have a language? You have to express what you want to say, which is your culture, your people, your identity. And when you think of everything that makes up an identity, all the plants and animals that you have, the food and drink, the myths, the legends, the history of your culture, the, the politics of it, the folk tales, the music, everything has to be talked about in language. And that means your local language, local words to do with the way you are and different from the way everybody else is. And so the result has been, as English has been taken up by well, over 70 countries in the world as an important medium of their local communication, but they've developed their own local brand of English. How many people spoke the language we are now conversing in, say, 600 years ago? Uh, well, certainly um, we know 
around about 1500, 1600, there were four million speakers of English in England, of course, we have to make the distinction now, there weren't that many in Wales, there weren't that many in Cornwall, there weren't that many in the Manx area up in the Isle of Man, there weren't that many in Scotland or Ireland, but in England there were about four million. And now in the early part of the 21st century, how many? Well, uh, if you distinguish between sort of first language speakers and foreign language speakers, there's about 400 million or so first language speakers, English is a mother tongue or father tongue, depending on your point of view, uh, around the world and about five times as many who speak English as a second or a foreign language. So we're talking about two billion people, you know, a third of the world's population, really. Uh, the important point to notice is that for every one native speaker of English, there are now four or five non-native speakers of English. So the center of gravity of the language has shifted with interesting consequences. Mm. And the language of the empire, science, industry, and of course technology, can't stop growing. Alex Krotoski, social psychologist and internet watcher. The big sign with the finger and the arrow pointing this way in, it's probably in English. And so we almost have an English language internet, which is, you know, the top layer in many ways. It is the, the primary business language of the internet. But then you've got a very powerful and a very large French language internet. You've clearly got an enormous Chinese language internet that is separate in so many ways from the English internet. So it really depends upon your perspective. Yes, there is an almost imperialism associated with this top slice of the English language internet, but then underneath, peel back the English language internet and you've got all these other internets. So, two factors, migration, which has been going on for hundreds of years, and technology, starting with the technology of printing. Both factors continue to propel English towards an uncertain future. Let's go back to migration and a specific example. Professor David Crystal. As you listen to these new Englishes around the world, you see these, you hear these, these little bits of fresh English turning up all over the place. So, for example, in India, one of the uh, most noticeable features of the grammar of Indian English is the way that they use tense forms, aspect forms, forms of the verb, in a way that in, say, Britain, you'd find uh, somewhat unfamiliar, even possibly downright ungrammatical. So, for example, a person in India might say, um, I am thinking of what you're saying, I'm, I'm remembering this, I am knowing it. Now, I am knowing, I am thinking, I am remembering is something that, on the whole, for that type of verb, you wouldn't say in British English. The system is changing. It's changing partly because there are many speakers of Indian English who are using it, so they're slightly becoming influential in Britain. And also some international organizations are now using that type of verb pattern in a way we didn't before. McDonald's, for instance, has its slogan these days, I'm loving it. In other words, British English is now re-importing its exports with, for example, a heavy flavor of American burger or that Indian use of the present participle. Part of a cultural trend, we exported Brown Windsor soup and re-imported Mulligatawney. We exported clogs, back came tap dancing. It, it's not just vocabulary and grammar that get re-imported in a different form. The most noticeable feature that you hear when you go around the new Englishes of the world is a new kind of rhythm. English traditionally has a very uh, stress-timed rhythm. By that I mean the stresses fall at roughly regular intervals in the stream of speech. You get a tum-ti-tum-ti-tum-ti-tum -tum -tum sort of effect. Three quarters of the languages of the world have what is called a syllable-timed rhythm. That is, the syllables carry the beat, so it's rat-tat-tat-tat-tat-tat -tat 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 -tat, rather than tum-ti-tum-ti-tum-ti-tum. -tum -tum -tum. 
Now, English has never been a syllable-based language, but it's becoming so because these other languages are influencing English. Go to South Africa, and you hear an Afrikaans speaker of English who says, I'm from South Africa. Go to India, and you hear people saying in India, you know, um, I am from India. I am from India. When you go to Jamaica, for example, where many Caribbean dialects of English are syllable timed, the person does not say, you know, I'm from Jamaica, tee-tum, tee-tum, tee. He says, I'm from Jamaica. And you get that kind of syllable timing. And you go all over the English-speaking world, you hear that new kind of rhythm manifesting itself. I bleed liquid gold, the slur speech in a cryptic hole. My feet slipping on this twisted road. Only the mystic knows, the lone figure in the distance. No bigger than the sum of his inscription. Rap is very much a syllable-timed kind of English. And this is the interesting point, in a way, that the syllable timing of, say, Caribbean English has suddenly been picked up and valued and copied by innumerable numbers of British English young people who previously would never have spoken in that way before. Look into my eyes, I don't need to spell it out, you can see it. How I tipped and fell down and picked myself up, turned myself round from the cliff's edge, and staggered home like a misled piss head and put up a fight till my fist fled. Jafakin is an example of this. You're listening to Future Conditional with Stephen Fry, part of Fry's English Delight. It's like the chocolate, you know, that bar, but it's not. Well, it's about the future of English, yeah? So, whatever. Jafakin, perfectly spoken. And there are lots of other terms of a similar kind, you know, combined terms. You get mockney, for example. Usually the term develops quite naturally within the community and then gets criticised by outsiders who don't really like it very much. The other source of new vocabulary is when traditional English words from Britain or America or wherever uh, get new meanings. And my favourite example is when I was being driven along the road for the first time in South Africa uh, and I see a sign at the side of the road saying, robot ahead and I have no idea what this means so I turn to the driver and I say what's a robot and he looks at me as if I'm mad he says don't know what a robot is and I say no what's a robot he says a traffic light uh, a robot is a South African word for traffic lights that's all so people say things like you know the robot is broken or the robot is red the robots turning green we too have a robot ahead but in our case it's doing something far more complicated than directing traffic it's probably doing the hardest language task any machine can be asked to do it's reading a novel how would a robot read a novel was the title of a recent event at the london school of economics now i'm pretty sure a picture is already building in your mind of a university scarved automaton somewhere between a dalek and dorothy's tin man snuggled up with an agatha christie or a henry james so how would a robot read a novel and why well for robot read computer program a program not called howard but alceste Dr. John Adams is a critic of literary criticism and an LSE researcher investigating where science and literature might meet. And it was he who initiated the question. My interest was whether or not this computer program, Alcest, would be able to produce the type of summary that would match the type of summary we would give if we were explaining to someone else what a book was about. And it seems clear that it can do a fairly good job of that with non-fiction texts. So there didn't seem to be any reason why it couldn't do this type of job with fiction texts as well. 
one of the first questions we ask of a novel is, well, what's it about? And when we're answering that question, we tend to diverge, say, oh, it's about love and relationships. Oh, well, I think it's actually about a class struggle. If you're a feminist, you'll think it's about the oppression of women. The first book we gave Alcest to read was a novel by Robert Hudson called The Kilburn Social Club. And the reason why we chose that novel was because we had access to the author, Robert Hudson. So we fed Robert Hudson's novel through Alcest. Alcest produced its readings. And then we brought Robert Hudson in. And we sat Robert down and we asked him, well, what's your book about? And Robert Hudson gamely said his plot's based on football, and the theme is how business and romantic relationships wane and become corrupt. And Alcest had split the Kilburn Social Club into four themes, and I think I have this right. The first, I think, was football, which makes good sense. It's a book set in a football club. Um, the second one was about business, which also makes good sense because it's about the business of the football club. The third was love and relationships, which is great, ideal. And so far, I think Robert was very happy with that reading. And then the fourth column was the surprise. Because one of the factors Alcest seized on was to do with setting, the place. Alcest recognized the significance of setting in the book, Kilburn. And it's where Hudson lives. It is definitely not looking at its best. We're not standing in the absolute prettiest part. We're on the high road between the Bronsbury Bridge and the Tricycle Theatre, and it's bleak and raining, and it's rush hour, and people are looking huddled and defeated. And anywhere around the world, you can find places like Kilburn. It's a mix of local shops and people who commute into the centre of towns grotty houses and lovely houses and bits of park and just the general things you need in your life. So Alcest rightly seized on the significance of setting in the novel. It is an important factor, but she failed to recognise that the Kilburn in the book wasn't the Kilburn that I or anybody else might know. And as it happens, I do know Kilburn. I've lived close to it for the best part of 15 years. My Kilburn, the Kilburn of the Kilburn Social Club, is shaped quite uh, deliberately by the fact that it has a major Premier League football club in the middle of it. This has given the place a glamour that it does not possess in real life and an identity that it loves and adores and means that instead of West Hampstead encroaching on Kilburn, uh, West Hampstead as it now is is proud to be called East Kilburn rather than somewhere a bit grimy. Alcest is a thing that gathers together collections of words. Had I written a book about Kilburn which I had researched with forensic detail and every brick of Kilburn was in the book that I had produced, Alcest would see no difference between that Kilburn and the Kilburn that I made up from my chair and included a load of lying sections about greater Kilburn and uh, glorious histories. It does not understand. Understand. Ah, there's a word. Alceste, for all her prodigious capacity to deal with text, understands nothing. In a controlled experiment, the Oxford University Department of Computational Linguistics got a separate but similar program to look at Lady Chatterley's lover. That program highlighted the importance of the word pair John Thomas, but failed to decode its, shall we say, euphemistic significance. Is this evidence that our great universities are squandering funds on tin men or, or on straw women? Surely not. 
Dr. Kavita Abrahams is an expert in qualitative research methodologies, and it's in the science of social psychology that Dr. Abrahams employs Alceste to read, and her daily fare is not, in fact, fiction. In the social sciences, we use a lot of different forms of text as data, as evidence, which we can then analyze and use to draw conclusions about the societies that produce those texts. At the Methodology Institute, we have a project on GM food. So we looked at the concepts around GM food in the newspapers over a period of 10, 20 years. And then people have gone through a process of manual coding of this text, which is an enormously laborious and long process, particularly when you're trying to then get agreement between the coders. The aim of all coding, whether it's Alcest or what we do, or many statistical techniques as well, is to look for patterns and aggregate large volumes of data in a systematic fashion into small six or five variables, themes, clusters, which we can talk about in a meaningful way. Of course, we can say we think they're about X, Y, and Z, but that wouldn't be research. So these researchers have, in a way, to act like machines to do their job. Researchers are human, as are academics, and they have good days and they have bad days. It is very subject to human error. As a human being, I will code something that I see based on the framework from which I'm coming. The benefit of Alcest is that it does that same process with that 20 years of data, newspaper articles around GM food. It does it automatically, and it does it in a matter of two to five minutes. In other words, technology, in this case what's called computational linguistics, can process language in a labour-saving way. Just as... Please put your shopping in the bagging area. ...will eventually do away with checkout people, Alceste and her gang will do away with some of the humdrum tasks associated with text-based research. Ron Kaplan, search engine engineer, thinks our relationship with technology is going to be important. We will try to make you love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, you know, and by we I mean all of the people who, you know, uh, certainly Microsoft Bing, but also I'm sure Google and Yahoo, everybody will want you to love their products and there will be a massive amount of economic incentive. You know, you talk to it and it controls things in your environment as well. Let's suppose that it can sense your blood pressure, sense your whatever it is, I mean, I don't know and it sees you come home late and you're tired, so it puts on soft music or it dims the lights or it says, Please put your shopping in the bagging area. Of course, when we speak to our own friends, often they don't understand. That will also still be true of technology. Your vacuum cleaner or your search engine may get it wrong, but at about the same level of frequency, the same level of frustration, let's say, that you have when you're speaking to a friend or colleague. Sometimes you have to explain, sometimes you have to repeat. We won't have to adjust. We will not have to adjust any more than we adjust when we meet somebody new and we begin to strike up a conversation. And in the next two years, three years, people will be able to really express to a search engine, for example, what it is that they really want with qualifiers and modifiers, uh, maybe a relative clause, they will understand what we mean. We apologize for the use of prophylactic inverted commas around words like understand and know. And at this point, we must bring out the first of two ducks, much favored by those interested in the future of language. Duck one. If I were to say, the duck is ready to eat. Quickly now, what springs to mind? The duck is ready to eat. Da, too late. 
Well, if we were in a farm, in a barnyard, it would have one interpretation. The duck is ready to eat. If we're sitting in a restaurant and they actually brought the duck 10 minutes ago, and little Billy, our little five-year-old who's with us this evening, he tried to eat it and it was too hot. This is Margaret Bowden, research professor of cognitive science at Sussex University, addressing the same duck interpretation. Professor Bowden is a world authority on the linguistic, philosophical and scientific question of whether or not the mind is a machine. And the easiest way, the most economical way of interpreting that sentence there is that it means that it is now appropriate for somebody to try and eat the duck. So that's what the duck is ready to eat means in that context. That's just a very simple example. There are all of these different ways that we use and interpret language which depend upon very great deal of psychological knowledge, of world knowledge, of knowledge about individual people, you know, the speakers and so on and so forth, which in principle could be put into a computer system merely because it's not done by magic in us and therefore in principle it could go on in some non-human system. I would say if we had a better understanding of the computations that are going on in the human mind, because that's the way I think about the mind, we would be able to model them in a computer. So in principle, uh, seems to me, you know, you could have a robot or a computer system sitting on your desk, which you could have a conversation with about any subject under the sun, but that's not to say that it's going to be possible in practice. An example I sometimes use is if you pointed to a grain of sand on the beach and said, um, let's go and find the professor of physics and he can tell us exactly how it was that this grain of sand ended up at this point on the beach and what's more he can tell us exactly where it's going to be in three hours time but of course he couldn't and even if you gave him all of the meteorological data and you weighed the grain of sand all the rest of it i mean you even if you had all of that data which of course you don't have but even if you did have it he couldn't answer your questions, but I could tell you, of course, the general principles about wind and weight and mass and inertia and all those things, um, which actually govern how sand moves on the beach. In other words, we might have robust theories about how machines will be created to join the throngs of humans speaking English, but theories butter no parsnips. And on the subject of roast vegetables, I did promise you two ducks. We've dealt with the readiness of ambivalent duck number one to eat or be eaten. Now another, let's call him Tim, a second more distant duck. Tim Duck 2. The theory is, if he walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then Tim is a duck. In other words, a computer that appears to speak intelligibly and appears to understand is ipso facto speaking and understanding. Margaret Bowden. I don't think that you could say that... Uh if a computer system using language appears to be using it sensibly and appears to be replying to you sensibly and so on and so forth, that you could necessarily say that it understands it. And I suppose there's two reasons for that. And one is that in order for you to be really, really persuaded that it understands it, it would need to be doing this at a very, very good level. And... Um, Personally, I don't think that that's going to be possible for many, many, many years, if ever. You'd need to have a very, very persuasive 
model of language in the computer. But supposing you did, I mean, for sake of argument, supposing you did, even that I don't think would settle the question of whether it understands it, because we don't really know what we mean by understand. It isn't a purely scientific question, this is the point. It's partly a very, very difficult scientific question, a set of scientific questions. What would you have to do to get the machine to behave like this? And secondly, uh, a whole host of very, very controversial philosophical questions about just what understanding is anyway. Yet the theory that literature and fiction might one day be interpretable by technology breeds on as an aspiration, albeit a distant one. I suppose the day that Howard and Alceste and Tim and the gang form their own book club Please put your novel in the literary criticism area. Is the day millions more English speakers, machines, join Professor David Crystal's billions of English speakers? Well, if technology develops to that extent, there's no reason whatsoever why one particular language should be privileged. Uh, in, indeed, Google are already saying that in two years' time, they're going to have some sort of Babelfish uh, effect that is going to allow person-to-person -person automatic translation. I'll believe it when I see it, but oh, a hundred years down the line, and, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to find amazing developments in instantaneous spoken and written translation, at which point um, you've got a 2001 Dave machine there um, and it can speak any language you want. But suppose we got into a TARDIS and went 200 years into the future, staying in the same place. Do you think we'd be able to understand how people spoke? Well, all we've got to go on is the precedent of the past, um, with one qualification I'll make in a second. And based on the past, then, well, you can go back further than 200 years. Go back to Shakespeare's time. 95% of Shakespeare's vocabulary is familiar to us today. You know, there is 5% or so that but is difficult. We have lived with it, whereas if Shakespeare mm. came into this room now, mm. how much would he understand us? Ah, well, of course, that's, that's, the language has increased in size enormously since then. I mean, the total number of words available to Shakespeare was probably only 150,000 or so, whereas now we've got a million and a half words in English, so it wouldn't be fair, really. Mind you, that is the point about understanding the language 200 years in the future. Remember, understanding language means three things. It means understanding the vocabulary, understanding the grammar, and understanding the pronunciation, or, of course, its written-down version. Now, there's no evidence that pronunciation is going to change out of all recognition, so that any more than 400 years ago, we can't understand the way Shakespeare would have sounded then. Um, grammar? 5% of the language has changed since Shakespeare's time. A few odd grammatical constructions are different. And I expect in 200 years' time, there'll be another 5% of change. But it's vocabulary where you see the main change in a language most directly. And um, that's where it gets very difficult to predict. Shakespeare would have trouble today because of the, well, a million words that have come into the language that are simply reflecting a culture, a technology, a society that was outside his imagination. Certainly, if you said to him, uh, I'll Facebook you later, he would find that very <laughs> odd, despite knowing the word face and the word book extremely well. So now we have to predict what are the technological developments going to be over the next 200 years that will generate another 500,000 words in English. There we are. What will English be like in 200 years? Not entirely sure. Is English endangered? Probably not. Will a computer ever stumble across the digital data that forms this program, listen to it and snigger quietly to itself? Or read Howard's End? Who knows? Is it worth speculating about? Absolutely. 
Fry's English Delight, yeah, was presented by Stephen Fry, that bloke, you know, the one, yeah. It was a testbed production, the producer was Nick Baker. By the way, is the duck, like, ready to eat? That was the last in the current series, but I'm happy to say that Fry's English Delight will be back next year. By the way, there's an extended version of Stephen Fry's interview with Professor David Crystal on the Radio 4 website.